The one thing I did regret that we didn't do more of is another thing that I think took me a while to kind of understand, and I regret not having done it earlier. And so my advice is to those listening, do it now, which is... That was Kevin Kelly. I'm Rich Bolas, and this is the Dad Mindset Show. This episode, I chat with Kevin Kelly, senior maverick at Wired Magazine, co-chair of the Long Now Foundation, and founder of the Cool Tools website. He's also the author of multiple best-selling books about the future of technology, and is well known for his radical optimism. We discuss lessons from the past to what the future holds for parenting, and also how AI may very well be more helpful in the family than we can imagine. Now, Kevin is such a generous font of wisdom, and I hope you take as much from this chat as I did. Kevin Kelly, welcome to the show. It's so good to have you here today. It's my pleasure, my privilege, my honor, and I'm really delighted and looking forward to this conversation. (laughs) Me too, Kevin. Um, You know, I've been a a fan for many, many years now. I mean, because you've done so many amazing things and and almost been at the center of all the things that I've been interested in. You know, you were senior maverick, um, co-founder of the Wired magazine back in 93, um, co-chair of the Long Now Foundation, and um, also founder of the very popular Cool Tools website, which is a Mm -hmm. rabbit hole. Like you can just fall into that Mm -hmm. and disappear for hours. Um, But you've also been an author to a ton of great books, you know, notably for me, like the inevitable and what technology wants, and and more recently, excellent advice for living. Um, can you tell me a bit about the inception of excellent advice for living? Yeah, this recent book is um, holding up right here. It's a little tiny book of four hundred fifty little bits, proverbs, adages, little bits of wisdom that I wish I'd known earlier, and. They began by me jotting down things that I thought I should let my kids, three kids know. Um, they were not things that we typically told them. We didn't, weren't really very preachy in that sense. So I realized that I've been writing these down for my own benefit and that I should kind of write out what I knew for them, um, figuring that it's, while we try to model uh, the behavior that we wanted rather than preaching it, um, it's still good to have these things in some form that you can kind of remind yourself. So these are reminders, really, little bits of reminders. And so um, I I was writing them down, and I gifted the first batch, which was the only batch at the time, to my kids on my birthday, and there was a big hit. They kind of started to go viral, so I, I kept making more of them. And now there's so many of them that they don't fit online. They're kind of kind of scattered. So I collected them into a book that you could hand to somebody who's younger than yourself. And um, the book is also proving to be popular among parents who say, my kids don't listen to what I say, but they'll listen to you. somebody else. So here, read this book. Yeah, exactly. So, hey, listen to Kevin for a while. He's got great yeah, 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 insights. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> No, it's fantastic. And uh, I, you know, I find myself, I was reading it on Kindle and I was just going through like highlighting every other thing. And, and it, what, what is some of your favorite pieces in there that, mm. to remind yourself or that you sort of forget yourself? Oh, some of it are sort of more philosophical, like um, the thing that made you weird as a kid can make you great as an adult as long as you don't lose it. So I, I kind of want to revert as much as possible to my childhood innocence and curiosity because that is kind of a key thing to keep as an adult because we kind of get rounded off by institutions by just the um the, you know the, the general drift of life and um you want to kind of keep some of those angles that you had as a kid because that's really what makes us different and differences the engine of the um, the of the economy today, and so that's one thing. Um, you know, um, kind of uh, the let your prof- let your weirdness go professional, right? So um, another bit is you know even practical things like um, if I lose something in my household, 
and I know I have bought it. And when I find it, I repeat to myself, don't put it back where I found it. Put it back where I first looked for it. <laughs> okay. And so I, I tell it myself all the time when I'm, when I'm doing those things. Um, you know, and so there's, there's, um, some practical things as well as that kind of philosophical stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's what I found really great about it. It wasn't sort of like a, a self help book or anything like that. Mm. It was just like a, a self prompt. Like these are, these yeah, are yeah, some yeah. things that right. have really worked for me. And you could, right, right, right. you could tell straight away that that's exactly what your driver was. Yeah. There were things like, um, um, if you're going to buy tools, buy the cheapest tool that you can and then kind of earn your way up. When you start really cheap, um, then you can kind of figure out whether it's useful to you and then figure out exactly what you want as an, in a more expensive version so that when you do spend money on it, you're getting exactly the thing that works for you. That's kind of, kind of contrary to a lot of people's advice, which was always to buy, you know, they call it uh, buy once, cry once. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's it. It would, right. it would usually be like um, pay cheap, cost dear. Yeah, yeah, right. So the idea was 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 that you 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 would buy the best that you could, and and that's not in my own experience. And other people who are really into tools is that you want to buy the cheapest you can, and then earn your way up. So that was another piece of it. Something that I learned the hard way. Yeah, and the, and the whole thing there is you can buy a whole heap of tools and solve most problems instantly without having to go to the hardware shop. And then if you use that tool lots, then it's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go deep on that one. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, with um, some, of the, some of the things around, well, I mean, tools, w one of the ones in the book was, you know, bad knives and bad pens. And and yeah. and that resonated deeply with me because, you know, there's I've got a couple of favorite pens and a couple of favorite knives, and and really it always irks me when I pick I cannot find one of them, and so I just need to get rid of all the all the bad knives yeah, yeah. in the kitchen. <laughs> so I've only got good right. ones. And that was the advice. Just to be clear, was if if you find yourself saying, um, "Where's my good pen? Where's my bad? Where's my good knife? Where's my good X?" Then you want to get rid of all everything else because you only want to have the good ones, right? I mean, so. Um, yeah, and that is again something that I, you know, have to remind myself all the time when I pick up something. It's like hmm, this is not that good. I don't, where's my good one? It's like okay, get rid of it. In fact, I have just today. I put a whole container of these the bad pens and pencils, which I'm going to donate to a school, and they can just use there. So um, it is a reminder, as you say. Yeah. Well, it's it's. Almost um, quite surprising how much stuff we we accumulate as well. I know you've talked yeah. about this uh, as well, like doing an inventory of your home. It's something cathartic, just letting go of stuff and giving it away, and then just yeah. keeping the stuff that really you know makes your heart sing yeah. and you really enjoy using. That's the um, Marie Kondo's idea of throwing everything else and just have the things that spark joy. She would say in the things that um, that you like and. Um, that's an ongoing process, right? In that, um, and also the other thing too that the I learned from the declutter experts, which is um, it's okay to collect a few things, but you have to put your your collection on display, make it very visible, make it something out front. If it's not visible, then it's a form of hoarding, and so you want to avoid it, and. Um, so, so yeah, you're permitted to collect things only if you can make them visible. If you can't, then you're just hoarding them. Yeah. There's there's actually a recent thing, which was not in the book. It was another something that I realized and someone else articulated. I'm a scavenger, right? I, mean, I like to scavenge stuff, make stuff from parts that I find. But here's here's the – I was late to coming into understanding this bit of wisdom, which is um, – you can only scavenge for the things that you need at the moment. Yeah. Right? Because you can't scavenge for things that you might use in the future because basically that you just fill up all your slots. Be that is because there's so much stuff available. And scavenging this way of, of like um, just-in-time scavenging – um, you're, it depends on your confidence that you're going to be able to find something <laughs> when you need it, which basically you can with Craigslist and everything else. You can do just-in-time scavenging 
which is, um, you know, I need a, I need a, you know, a motor from something. Okay. I will, I know that today somewhere out on the curb, there's going to be a motor <laughs> somewhere around me. And that's usually true. Yeah, uh, that's I, I definitely need to take that on board because uh, <laughs> like uh, I've definitely been known to wow, that's a, an awesome bit of wood. I'll put that aside. I'll, I'll use yeah, that yeah, some, yeah. at some stage. But there's definitely the uh, a, a bit too much hoarding. Uh, one of the things I've mm-hmm. actually got into recently is well, during COVID, it was it was actually doing woodwork from tree branches so actually cutting green mm. branches and that was actually mm-hmm. that opened up a whole new world because the, the woods mm-hmm. are always available and it made a little like mm-hmm. draw horse and things like that and it was just mm-hmm. so much fun and it was like oh I ran yeah. out oh, i just go over to the corner of the garden there's some more over right, there right, right. <laughs> yeah working with green wood is, is a very different experience than working with uh kiln dried wood yeah and and you've spent quite a lot of time with the amish people as well haven't you yeah um the amish Again, there, we have a stereot- romantic ideas about the Amish, but most of the Amish I know have fairly sophisticated workshops and tools. They have power tools. It's just that they're powered by pneumatics, by air pressure. They have a huge diesel generator in their backyard running diesel that will make um, pressurized air that they run into their workshop in their home. They call it Amish electricity. And they have converted their power tools and their power appliances to pneumatics. So it's, they'll have a blender. They'll have a washing machine. They'll have a, so, a table saw that's running on air power instead of electricity, and it's okay. So the Amish are not doing green wood. <laughs> <laughs> they are... They've got a shop with the planers and the joiners and everything else. Um, yeah. Yeah. Don't be, don't be fooled. No, no, no. Cause I remember you saying like he, one of your friends actually had a CNC router on, on his, on yeah, his yeah, yeah. In the backyard. <laughs> the little girl in a bonnet is running. It's 14 year old girl in a bonnet. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, um, it's fascinating though, isn't it? How, how technology has really evolved. What, what are the things that have really, I guess surprised you because I mean you're known as a futurist. What are some of the things today that have have sort of been a ah oh, wow that is a little bit. Um, I saw recently I went down to Neuralink, Elon Musk, other place, and they were um, I saw the demo there with the monkeys who have uh, implants, the you know a little thing jacked into their brain, wireless that allows them to. Um, uh, play a video game, control the, the joystick with their minds, with their brains, without their hands. So they're just thinking and they're controlling and playing a game. That's pretty amazing. I, I thought that was 100 years in the future, but it's like 25 years in the future. I mean, they, they just, after just two weeks ago, a week ago, FDA uh, passed, um, U.S. FDA passed approval to, to put these into humans. So they're going to have their first human clinical trials. And they're being used, these, these jacked-in interfaces, to, be, um, to enable the paralyzed to walk. Wow. That's, that's the first um, use of them. So it's way, I mean, using these to play video games is going to be way, like I said, 25 years away. But that's 25 years versus 100 years. So that was a complete surprise. Um, I've, I've, played, I've used the bands and have played ping pong or pong computer game using just my, my band. So I know that it's, I know that it works because I could control it, but, um, it's still, uh, having that degree of being able to, um, do it in high resolution with, with, with much more control. I, I thought it was far away and yet it's near. Wow. Yeah, that's that's astonishing, isn't it? It's it's interesting that you say twenty five years as well, because I remember Buckminster Fuller used to sort of say that twenty five years was like a that generational mm-hmm. time span where where someone can like imagine the future, um, and and it almost that that's something that I I do think about a bit in that in the time when sort of the stuff that's made today was. It, yeah, well, sort of the the engineers of today when they were children, like we had things like Star Trek and and really sort of 
fanciful futures, lots of it. I don't know whether there's as much these days. I think it might be a different kind of forward looking. And I wonder how that's going to change how the future sort of it, the future that we talk about inspires the generations like growing yeah. up today. Danny Hillis first conceived of the 10,000 year clock that we've been building in the mountain in Texas, the clock that's underground that will tick for 10,000 years. It's actually a, basically it's a computer because it calculates the time rather than having gears uh, measure the time. And um, he was inspired to, to think of it because in the late 90s, he was saying that the thing about the future was it was all, had, for all his life, it had been the year 2000. And as we approached the year 2000, nobody was, nobody was sort of talking about the future beyond that. And he was a little frustrated by that. So he thought of having a clock that would kind of encourage us to think long term. But you're right that there has been, um, not as much, um, true, you know, actual genuine futurism of a positive sort. Most of the, futurism that we see is in the movies and it's all mostly dystopian. It's all about a future that you definitely don't want to be living in. And um, that's the project I'm working on is making a, imagining a future that we want to live in that has all the stuff like AI and genetic engineering and all the rest. Um, it's hard to imagine a world like that. And I think, that's where we are right now, where the futures become harder to imagine because it is so complicated and because we become quite successful at imagining all the things that go wrong. <laughs> Whenever, when I was growing up, you heard about a new kind of technology. It was like, Oh, that's really cool. That's, that's, that'd be, that's going to be fantastic. And now the immediate first response that everybody has is, how is this going to hurt? How is this going to bite us? You know, whatever, if, if we announced something, you know, um, I don't know, well, successful fusion um, energy, commercially fusion energy, people would say, How's, this is bad. I know this is going to hurt. I know we're going to regret this. How is this going to be bad? And rather than imagining all the good things that might come from it, they'll immediately talk about what's wrong with it because it's so easy to see. It's just cheap to see what's wrong with something, it's much more difficult to imagine what's right about it. Yeah. And that piece about sort of um, optimism as well, thinking in an optimistic mindset is actually solving today's problems in the future. Um, how did you word yeah. that? that was so so I, 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 what, I, what I say about optimism is the best way to become more optimistic is to take a longer view of things is to is to have a long perspective to kind of raise your time horizon from next year to 10 years to 100 years and that um, I'm optimistic not because I think our problems are too small or not as or not interesting enough it's 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 because or not real but I actually I think our problems are real and I think they are not small but I believe that our capacity to solve the problems is even bigger and growing faster. And so so my optimism is in the fact that, that we can increase our ability to solve them and that future generations will have even more tools for solving these than we have. And so that's where my optimism comes from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what about um, your optimism around, say, parenting? Like, how do you see that sort of evolving? Because it definitely feels like it's evolving quite drastically at the moment. Yeah, you know, um, I think we have overall um, made progress in parenting um, for a couple of reasons. One is historically, historically in terms of like the great range of even within the last 10,000 years and within civilization, um, most um, people were uh, parents at a very young age. I mean – in the teens oftentimes. And it's like, yeah, that's that's really tough to be a great parent when you're a teenager because you hardly, hardly know anything. So postponing parenthood overall on average 
has been really beneficial because people are a little wiser. They're, 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 they know a little bit more. They can, they can be better. And then secondly, we, we have, um, we have longevity among our grandparents. So the grandparents are around, which we can't say for was true for most of, um, civilization. And then thirdly, um, we, um, we just have more information. We just have more information about good parenting. We, we know more about it. We have a much better idea of scientifically what works and what doesn't work. And, you know, it's not just my little advice book, but whole fields of child psychology and child rearing and, and science done to test um, child development. And, and we, we know a whole lot more. Yeah, that that basically beating your kid does not help anybody. Okay, that that's just. But that was that was the norm. Yeah, pretty recently as well. Pretty recently, that was the norm. Was you whipped kids? Okay, and now we know no, that's not a good idea. And so. Um, so, and so what I'm looking forward to is I think things like AI and others could help disseminate um, better practices to everybody in the world on a kind of on a on-demand basis where you are going there for advice. And, um, you know, um, the thing I say about the AI and advice is that um, – yeah, I think for the time being, for as long as we can see right now, a say a human uh, therapist, a human doctor, a human child psychologist, a human um, you know superstar parent is better than an AI. But an AI is better than having none of those. Yeah, totally. If you don't have a doctor, if you don't have a psychologist, if you don't have a therapist, if you don't have a parent around or grandparent to, to, to guide you, having one of these AIs that are well-trained on everybody else's um, good data will be a benefit yeah. to the people who need help. And, and I think the, the, the point as well that sort of resonates for me there, Kevin, is like in the past, we probably had a village that would help support the parents. And there was that sharing of like responsibilities with the children. And, you know, you go off with your uncle to learn fishing and all that sort of stuff. We, we don't have as much of that today. But what we do have is we have access to the best in the world. Which right. is phenomenal, you know, like leagues ahead of what someone in the village, the wise person in the village would have come up with. We've got like thousands of times better because it's been experimented over in, I don't know, some other country, but we have access to that now. And so that, it definitely feels like that is such a, a game changer as well. It, it is. It levels the field in many ways where everybody can, you know, partake of good advice. And, um, yeah, I mean, the thing about the village was a lot of the advice they had for raising kids at that time was not good advice. Yeah. But, um, you know, raising kids is more than just having good advice. There's so much more just being consistent, being reliable, being loving, being warm, all those things count as much as being smart. Yeah, and time with the kids, because I know and that time. definitely comes through in the book as well. You know, if you, I mean, if you had your time over as a parent, Kevin, would you do things differently or? Uh, there's some things I would definitely do differently. I put in the time. I have no regrets about the time I put in. Um, the one thing I did regret that we didn't do more of that's in the book of advice is um, doing more family rituals um, because they're so easy to do. They're basically free, and they were so meaningful. And uh, to do a family ritual, you have, to, you have to do something three times in a row, and it's a ritual. And the important thing for the kids is having them anticipate it. That anticipation is, is a mark that it's a ritual. But what the ritual does, this recurring thing that you do, is that it 
forms a it forms an anchor. It's anchoring because it's reliable. You can count on it. It's dependable. And children crave that reliability and consistency and what you can expect and no surprises and that kind of security that they get in having something be counted on. And so it may be that even if things are kind of crazy, things are upsetting around them in any way, but if they have this thing where they know every Sunday morning you're going to cook pancakes, that can counter all that other stuff. And the more of those you have, the more anchoring they are, the more settling and also, the more they take on legendary status and they become something that you can return to. So you can count on it, return to it. Even when you move away from home, it's something that in their head, the kids return to in their image of um, of home. And, and that's sort of that home sense of resting in it, of being the safe place is in part because of the little rituals that you make. Yeah, and it's almost like a home you can take with you anywhere as well. Yes. You know, even if you right. move lo physical location, you can still yeah, do yeah, pancakes yeah, yeah. on a Sunday morning. Right, exactly. I meant the home in kind of a metaphorical sense. Mm. Right. But, but um, um, so that's, yeah, that's something that, that I wish we had done more of because, again, it could be something as easy as, you know, um, something you do before every birthday. It could be how you do a birthday card. It could be what you do on annual vacation or where you go. It could be something that you do at the seasons, at the equinoxes. It doesn't matter as long as you do it three times <laughs> and then you keep doing it. Um, it becomes something. And, and so um, anyway, that's something I do wish we had done more of. Uh, another thing that I think took me a while to kind of understand and I regret not having done it earlier. And so my advice is to those listening, do it now, which is um, to work on the identity of the family as so that when kids are going through, they're inventing, their, they're making up, they're creating their identity. And it really is helpful for them to have, be given the identity of a family to help them, again, become a platform for developing their own identity. If they have nothing, it's so hard. But if they can kind of fall back to the identity they have as a family, the family identity. So that means like our family does this or our family doesn't do this or our family is about this or our family is always this way. And there is a sense in which um, that, again, that rootedness, that anchoring becomes important. And um, it, to have that family identity, it becomes things that you do as a family but also talking about the kind of family happiness and the happiness of the family and and um, then the identity of the family, meaning that you talk about, well, our, you articulate that this is what our family is about. This is the brand of our family. This is what we do. How you know? And so um, that, again, is something that's inexpensive to do. Um, it's more powerful than, than I thought particularly, again, as kids get older in age and they look back and they try to carry that forward. Um, articulating that is, 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 is part of this process where you may be doing it, but you actually say it. It's like a branding exercise <laughs> in some ways. So, um, so yeah, so, so, I mean, maybe I reduce it to like, you know, what's the family brand? And um, how that, the power of branding is, is at work here. Yeah. I love that because <laughs> you could say like, oh, we're a family that really loves adventuring. And, yeah. and, and that's something that the, the kids really latch onto. And like, no, no, we're, we're an adventuring right. family. And e but even if they don't themselves adventure, it's having that as a, as a, as a platform, as a beginning to develop our own. They may, you know, they may come around and say, yeah, my family was all about adventuring and I never kind of got into it. But, um, at least there was a place for you to start to understand that you were, you know, you were not that. And so hopefully the, 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 what the family's about does include everybody in the family or else it really isn't that authentic, but um, you don't have to necessarily, you know, it doesn't have to, if your family's about 
well, our family was public service or whatever it is. It doesn't mean you have to go into public service, but it does mean that that's that you have some something about that that you can carry forward. Yeah, yeah, you have a solid roots. <clears throat> right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, you have solid roots to work from and figure out what's what's for right. you and what's not for you um, moving forward. Yeah, I really like that. I think um, w- with that as well, like you, you say, the inexpensivity of, yeah. you know, I, I love one of the points you made about spending uh, for best results in children, spend half the money you think you should, but double the time with them. And that to me is gold. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, so I have I have some, f- my, my best friend has um, nine kids. Um, no, he has seven kids and my, his, my other friend has nine and um i have some and and he and one of the guy with nine is works in a grocery store so they have no money you know at grocery store wages with nine kids um they bought a big like school bus to try and do vacations because they couldn't afford to fly and um but the thing about that is is when they're growing up the kids don't know that they don't have any money they they have no idea. Uh, they just don't even know. It doesn't doesn't register. You, you could be hand me down clothes. That's okay. They they there's no. It works. But they do notice, and they will notice if you don't spend the time with them. So I just saw I saw someone else tweet something that I thought was really great. It said the um. Uh, the only, the only. People who will notice when you go that you worked your day off or something as your kids or something like that. It was I don't know the exact phrasing, but it's really great. Meaning that yeah, the, the not spending the time with the kids is something that they will notice, and that so maximizing that over money is you know you don't want to be working hard to make more money for your kids. That's doesn't work. You want to be taking time off from working for your kids. Yeah, yeah, totally. The um, I know that you've got a, a grandchild now as well. Like, how has mm-hmm. how has that changed mm. for you? Well, I I I made a busy board for her. She's a, a, a girl. She's almost two. Um, my wife is very in love. She's totally in grandmother mode and just gaga. Oh, look at the little picture on her phone. It's like, and it's like, it doesn't work on me. Those meta, those Jedi mind tricks don't work on me. And so, and so, uh, um, it's, it's been fun. Um, I, I think actually, now that you mentioned it, I think, okay, here's what it is. I think the joy for me is seeing my daughter develop and become, you know, Become an adult, become become a parent. That has been more fun directly for me than the pleasure of the little one. And so I think the little one needs to be a little older for me to kind of really engage it. The kinds of things I like to do, you know, making stuff together, doing adventures, that kind of thing. But I've really enjoyed. It's my daughter who has um, our grandchild, so I've been really enjoying the development of my daughter as she has sort of blossomed into motherhood and beyond. I and mean, she's a full-time working mom. So like my wife was, um, just seeing her kind of grow into that, it's been really the real pleasure for me. How have you seen her change? Um, well, she, um, She was always kind of nerdy, a little bit of our family, slightly nerdy. And I think she has, you know, her compassion, empathy has enlarged. Um, a little bit more concerned or, or more sensitivity in that, in that way. I mean, she was, she had her head buried in her fantasy books for a very, very long time. Um, and so, um, yeah, and I, I think she's a lot more outward focused now. I guess is is one one way I would put it. 
It, it must be really great as well to actually spend more time with her, but almost like alongside her as she's parenting now, because she'll understand yes. where you're coming from a lot more. Right, right. She very shrewdly moved into our neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> That's a Jedi move <laughs> right there. Very. So uh, she's in our neighborhood, which is a great neighborhood, I have to say. And so within walking distance. And um, so, yeah, so she she has grand, grandparents nearby to help her, which is um, which is really cool, too. Yeah, I, it cannot be understated. Like, uh, we, we moved into state because essentially I was struggling to, to look after the kids because when, when our roles reversed for a year, Sarah took on a full-time mm -hmm. job. I looked after the two girls. And it was tough, really tough, being isolated. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, we came back. <laughs> we were like, let's get as close to at least one set of the grandparents as possible. Mm -hmm. And where are you located now? Uh, so Torquay in um, Victoria, the okay. sort of southern part of Australia. Okay, all right. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. It definitely uh, good to have, um, you know, and my mom and dad would come over from England sort of once a year yeah, for yeah. three months at a time before COVID, and that was amazing as well. So having grandkids yeah. is just that, I don't know, I can't even describe what it does for the kids, but it's just having, it's almost like, it's not having another set of parents, it's having someone that just totally has so much time for you. Yeah, and I think yeah. that's it, it comes back to that time thing. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not there yet because I have not retired. I don't plan to retire. My wife actually is not retired either. So um, so we're not at the kind of abundant time grandparents. Maybe, and I'm not sure we'll ever get there. Um, but the one thing you, you do get from um, grandparents is this sort of um, completely unconditional love, right? I mean, because there's no, there's no responsibilities for it. And so <laughs> yeah. you can kind of totally spoil them in a certain beneficial way. If like, yeah, you're going to get the good stuff. You know, I don't need to give you any of the harsh stuff. You're just going to give me the good stuff. And um, so one of the bits of advice I have in my book, which is something that we've learned, um, which is um, uh, grand, you know, grandparents are not parents. So, so, so it, 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 in your parents, you have parents rules. And when you're at your grandparents, grandparents rules yeah so there's a sense that we're when they come here they're like there's a different set of rules for behavior i, I may be a little bit stricter but we also probably be a bit more more generous in some sense so anyway so it's grandparents grand ha, grandparents house grandparents rules parents house parents rules yeah i love that because that could cause so much tension especially right, right, with right. in-laws as in like right 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 if you're the blow-in and you have your own set of rules it's like no no hang on this no, no, is no, no. my house my rules right right sorry right. that's just how exactly. it is exactly <laughs> if we're in a public space there's a different thing altogether yeah okay. right there's probably you know it's parents rules but at grandparents house grandparents rules yeah <laughs> uh, it's certainly going to be interesting do you think you there are any more grandkids in in the near future you don't know it's always possible you know they're young yeah yeah <laughs> now um just to um sidetrack a bit I, I i did want to like dig into some of your teachers kevin like do you have a particular teacher or a couple of teachers that have really been instrumental for you i had a coach in high school a track coach it was my first encounter with sort of like a really great um, coach or leader. And I would define that as somebody who saw what I could do and believed it long before I saw or believed it. So he, he says, I know what you can do, and I'm going to help you get there. I was like, whoa, okay. So um, that was one teacher that I still remember. Um but more recently, um, I would say I have a mentor, although it was never formally declared that, but that was Stuart Brand, who was who I worked for at Whole Earth until he left to take his next to do his next thing. And we have since worked at the Long Nile Foundation and others projects with him. And I've just learned so so much from from him. Um in it's hard maybe for me to make a list but i really should um 
It's about like one of the things that I think became a piece in the book I don't remember now about learning how to say no politely. He really taught me he was really good at saying no. And he would say no. Here's his genius. He would say no and make it um, feel like it was a favor that he was saying. (laughs) It was like in your interest Yeah, for him to say no. That's like, okay, that's really useful. And um, um, I just learned other things from him about, oh, um, trusting the the bottom, the kind of decentralized things. He was very early. The whole Earth catalog that I eventually ran was a user, reader-generated and reader-supported publication. No ads. All the content came from the readers. And the kind of... Relying on that, he had a, he had a kind of um, an intuitive sense, and he was really good at um, what's the word on um, relying and, and depending and um, yeah, relying on that. And then he was really good about lateral thinking, and the was a term that I don't think he's ever used, but I'm calling it that, where you know thinking differently, thinking creatively, and I've just been in so many. Um, sessions with him to see how that worked and uh, the ways in which you could come at things from a different angle and the little tricks that you would and the habits that you would get from trying to to be imaginative to how would to, he to, how would he yeah. do that Kevin did he have like a, a set of tools that you know, or comments that he would or questions that he would ask what what would it look like if you were sat in a meeting with him I think. After a while, it was intuitive, but I think the kinds of things he would do, he was trained as a biologist. He was interested in whole systems. So taking, he would take a system and like a mechanical system, like, and apply like biological metaphors to it. And, you know, um, and that would yield something. Marvin Minsky, whom Stuart also was like a, felt was someone who taught him, Marvin Minsky would, would adopt this little heuristic. It's like he would pretend he was a Martian. Pretend he was not a human. He would ask, like, you know, what, what would a Martian see? Um, you know, Richard Dawkins had a little bit when he would ask with his selfish gene. He was, like, trying to imagine biology from the point of view of the gene. So Stuart had a little bit of that kind of Empathy that was like beyond a personal, but like like a trans species like empathy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. A systematic yeah. empathy of like imagining from the point of view of the system and like all the other parts of a system and trying to to view it from all those different angles. That was one thing. The other thing is he liked to have his mind changed, um, and that idea of like trying on things. And, you know, doing the steel man arguments about trying to um, to imagine the impossible. Brian Eno, I, Brian Eno was another person in this group that I learned from, and he learned from Stuart. We would do these unthinkables where we would try to imagine an unthinkable, like what could make an unthinkable thinkable? What would, if you started with something that seemed completely preposterous, and you say, well, that's how it ends up. How did we get there? And you work back from that. So there was a, there were a lot of kind of tricks that we would apply, but and some of them became more unconscious and something you did without thinking very much about it. But that's the general drift of being empathetic to the system, of will, being willing to be wrong, of being willing to have your mind changed, of assuming that you're wrong and playing with that. So there was a sense in which you were, um, and there was another term that came out of this. You had strongly strongly stated opinions loosely held. Yeah, yep. Okay? So you would say something with confidence, but there was no, there was no identity in it. There was no holding on to it. There was no, there was no attachment to it. So it's kind of like a Zen. There's a little, now I'm thinking about it. It's a very Zen-y in a sense that you are offering things without attachment and um, you're playing with them. There was a, there was a, a play, f- 
a serious play element to it. Wow, it's it's fascinating when you say that sort of leaving the ego at the door because it comes back to that yeah. idea almost like a, that we are almost like conduits. And, right. and, you know, ideas pop up anywhere and it's right. just whether we're open to letting it pass through us. Right, and it's, you know, it's not just you would use these at a brainstorming meeting, but this would just be the constant thing that you would be applying everything. If you're going to email from somebody and they either wanted something or suggesting something, it was that same attitude, the same thing of like conjuring with it, playing with it, not getting into a rut, you know, whatever it is. If you're going to say no, say it immediately, you say it politely, you say it in a way that makes it um, seem like a favor. And so there was, this was this was a, a, a lifelong, everyday attitude rather than kind of something you did in a brainstorming session. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds wonderful. Uh, it must be such a, an amazing sort of brains trust to be a part of as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's the, they were they were my teachers. Yeah, and and seeing them do that, and um, which I'm articulating it, and I'm not even sure that that's exactly what they're doing because they probably don't know what they were doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just become so intuitive for them. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's interesting you said that as well because like. Um, I know you mentioned about the two percent as well that we see on the surface, and generally, yeah. there's, you know, we forget about the ninety-eight percent below right, the surface. Right. Who was some of your favorite authors as well? Like, who are the oh. authors that really inspired you? Well, there's different ways of answering that. I, I think I decided that I wanted to write after reading um, Annie Dillard. I was in Sri Lanka traveling. As I, you know, my twenties, and there was a library. I think it was in Kandy, Sri Lanka, up in the mountains. And, and I always went into libraries to to kind of read the Time magazine because just to get the news. At that time, that was really the only the only option there was. And I would go into local libraries. And so I went into the library in Sri Lanka, and there was English books, and there was this book, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. And I picked it up, and I read it, and it was like. I was like, I was a bell that was being struck. It was just like, I was so struck by this. And I just consumed it. And it was just, it made me want to to write. I didn't write. I didn't start writing afterwards. I didn't do anything. But it made me be conscious of, like, the power of writing. And, and, you know, I've read, read the classics. I'd read other writers, but there was something about that that was like at my frequency. It was like having that resonant where they were vibrating at the exact frequency that I was vibrating, and okay, I got it. And so, and I just was just looking at Andy Diller's work just recently, and again, it's like, oh my gosh, she's got my number. It's like, <laughs> this, she's got you dialed. She, this is it. I, I don't, doesn't matter what she's saying. I am just so enlivened by it so energized by it and so um so that's a writer that i just really um am, am, you know really inspires and, and energizes me um there are other writing that i was influenced as i mentioned henry david thoreau in high school he was my hero his writing you know i mean his writing was was spare, and he was he was he was good. Um, actually, I reread Walden recently. So when I read we were in high school, it was like again, my mind is blown. This guy building his own house. It was everything I wanted to do. It was like, and just his whole take on on self reliance and all that kind of stuff it was just so fantastic. I reread it recently, and I was like, man, he's so full of himself. <laughs> what a it seems like, you know, it seems like one of those bros, you know, like entrepreneurial bro. And it was like, I don't know, it's a completely different vibe I got <laughs> later on. It was, like, it was like, no wonder he wasn't a best-selling author at the time. No wonder maybe nobody was paying attention to. But as a high school kid, I was very impressed by it. Um, other writing, um, well, um, Rumi, the poet Rumi is another one that, I just feel like he's writing to me, for me. 
And I, although I, I can't read poetry, I just don't have the patience for it. I've no interest in it. But something about Rumi's writing is the exception, and it just it just slaps me on the side. And I just yeah. So I can I just think it's. I almost don't think it's writing because, of course, it's being translated. Who knows what it really says? Um, but there's something about that, those little things that inspire my own book of, of wisdom, that kind of compressed zip file thing that you can un, the unzip, the see, the kind of the mind grenade. I, I just love that from him and that kind of cosmic yet rooted perspective. Um, so, so Rumi, I could just read any time. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I'm highly conscious of, of your time actually, cause I know we're, we've got to sort of wrap things up here. So yeah. I, I want to thank you so much, Kevin. Uh, when you were just saying that thing about that, I was, I was thinking, ah, oh, I know reading to the kids is a, is a really big thing. And I wonder which books you'll, you'll be, uh, Reading to right, your, right. your grandchildren, but um, right, right. <laughs> well, I'm not sure I'll be reading Rumi to them. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that would come hit the top list, but uh, but um, I, would, I might do D- Dickens or something, a, a nice story, uh, something that has a good story in it. But go yeah. on. No, no, no. That's that, that's definitely uh, much more. Uh, I think uh, uh, applicable. But um, I, I just want to thank you so much for all the work you've yeah, put yeah. out into the world, but but continuing to do so much. I mean, you've got so many projects on the go that are, are, are so meaningful for, for humankind. So thank you so much, Kevin. It's it's wonderful You're to actually see you. You're very, very welcome. I really appreciate it. Um, one of the things I would leave people with, maybe my favorite bit of advice from this book, is um, don't aim to be the best. The best is... Um, is limited. It's going to be one number one uh, golf player or you know Chinese chef, whatever it is, and they aren't going to be number one for long. So um, don't aim to be the best. Aim to be the only. Be the only in something. Head off in that direction. You'll never really reach that. And if you're young, you'll have no idea what it is that you're good or better at with other people. It's going to take most of your life to figure that out, but you just keep heading in that direction of looking to say, what is it I'm doing that I find easy, that other people find hard, that I understand that nobody else does, that I care about that other people don't, um, and head in that direction, and there'll be less competition, because you're the only. You won't need a resume, and um, you're more likely to to find out what it is um, that way that you are the only about. So I appreciate your time and letting me rant here <laughs> um great questions thank you i enjoy your spirit and um i'm really appreciative well thanks for listening i hope you found kevin as insightful and inspiring as i did i highly recommend checking out his new book excellent advice for living wisdom i wish i'd known earlier as kevin said it's more of a reminder of how to be a good human being and i reckon pound for pound it has more nuggets of gold than any other book on the market at the moment i'll put a link in the show notes at the dadmindset.com If one of these episodes has resonated with you and you haven't already, the thing that you can do to help the most is to follow the podcast on Apple or Spotify. Sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends is, of course, awesome and really helpful. For podcast updates, please subscribe to the newsletter, which you can find along with all the show notes at thedadmindset.com. Well, that's about all for me for now. I hope you have a great week and enjoy your caffeinated beverage.